This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to the next East Trauma Cast. I'm Lauren Dudas, an acute care surgeon at West Virginia University. On behalf of East, we'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and TraumaCast. Point of Care Ultrasound has rapidly expanding indications over the past few years. In coordination with the East Emergency General Surgery Committee and the persistence of one of our new moderators, Sham, we're excited to bring you this conversation with two surgical leaders in the field. Without further delay, I'll hand the mic over to Sham. Thanks, Lauren. Hi, everybody. My name is Sean Murley. I am a new surgical critical care fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, everyone. I'm Rita Brinsenhoff. I'm an acute care surgeon from Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, and very excited to be here talking with people that I've read so many of their papers finally get to speak to in person. Fantastic. And we have some really great guest speakers with us today, Dr. Paula Ferrada and Dr. Sarah Murthy. Paula, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us where you're at and how you first got into point-of-care ultrasound. First of all, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I am really passionate about point-of-care ultrasound and it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you all. And even better than that is to be able to share this space with Dr. Sarah Murthy because a lot of what I learned about echocardiogram, I owe to her. And that will come across, I think, during our talk. So I have been in practice. I did train in at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh for surgical critical care. And then I did an extra year in acute surgery and uh, shock trauma. And I became interested in point of care ultrasound when I was a surgical resident at the Deaconess. The surgical residents at the time were not doing that much ultrasound. So I became a national ultrasound instructor back in 2006 when I was a seal resident and uh, chair a course for fast ultrasound for our residents. And we took a little bit off it from the emergency medicine physicians, but with time, we learned to collaborate. Instead of like taking a little bit of the pie, we made the pie a little bit bigger. And I think it helped our patients. Then I became interested in echocardiography uh, for fluid status. Um, it, I'll tell you the full story later because I don't want to be a Ferrata story. But because of a patient, and it was when during my time in Pittsburgh, but I became good at it. Because I had the opportunity to be, and I think I was the first fellow that was with Dr. Murthy in that service. I had the opportunity to spend a full month with Dr. Murthy. And then from there, uh, a full year, because everything that I found in ultrasound and I went back and checked, we checked together, we talk about it. We both learn from each other tremendously more. I benefited more than her, I think. And then from there, um, I published some, I, I trained my faculty, and I had a couple of courses that I have been, one of them that I designed with the Pan American Trauma Society, and one of them that I modified with the American College of Surgeons that basically trained surgeons how to perform point-of-care ultrasound that led to some, to some publications. And I am super proud that uh, we have been able to train nurse practitioners, uh, paramedics, medical students, residents, fellows, surgeons, which I think, honestly, not to be funny, are probably the hardest to train and um, in how to use ultrasound to benefit the patient in need. And uh, I am just like super happy and passionate and appreciative of the opportunity to be here today. Fantastic. We're super happy to have you. Dr. Sarah Murthy, tell us about yourself. 
Hi, I'm Sarah Murthy. I am director of the Critical Care Ultrasound Program here at Shock Trauma. I'm a surgical intensivist and I trained in acute care surgery and trauma surgery. ECHO is really my focus and it's in um, using more advanced quantitative functional measurements to understand how to use inotropes, vasopressors, and fluid together as opposed to piecemeal. Paula was one of my first fellows and she actually wrote the first paper on the focused rapid echocardiographic evaluation, the free exam, ages ago that we presented at AAST. So that's my background and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I love working with Paula. I think this is an amazing topic. So let's see where this goes. Let's just jump right in and let's hear a little bit about the history of POCUS for surgeons. Where did it really start? I actually think that none of us will be able to talk about ultrasound in trauma without mentioning Grace Rosicki. She was the person that took ultrasound and made, translated into surgeon language. And uh, meaning like made it um, available and made us understand that we were able to learn a new skill. I mean, if we can take a gallbladder out, why can we learn how to use ultrasound and see the anatomy? Nobody knows anatomy better than surgeons. We touch the heart, right? How are you not going to know how it looks in ultrasound? So she, I think she pioneered that. And from there, I think there's tons of papers and it became wider and and bigger. And I think that other disciplines catch up pretty fast to what we were doing. And I think because, I don't know, at one point there was a mislink that we um, surgeons got a, a little bit left behind other specialties in, um, in using the ultrasound. I think in many places where there's less resources, I'm, I'm going to say places where CT scans on MRIs and all of that is more like science fiction. Ultrasound has become the go-to tool, not only to place lines, but in many places, low and medium income countries, that's the only thing that they have to help uh, patients that are sick. I think the intensivists, all brands of intensivists, medical um, and surgical and emergency physicians and anesthesiologists have adopted it. And I think since then, now we can see how it's been taught in medical schools and, and the majority of them have incorporated that in the curriculum. I would like to add that um, I totally agree with everything you said about Grace. Tom Scalia actually first authored the original paper describing the FAST, which I think was the first point-of-care ultrasound exam. And I do think that surgeons really created point-of-care ultrasound. And where it seems to be the major divide happened was emergency medicine very early started incorporating it into their training program. So they recognized before internal medicine, before surgery, very early that you had to mandate it in training for it to become... Um, used throughout emergency departments. And I think intensivists are also behind emergency medicine and their their knowledge and understanding of point of care ultrasound. I totally agree with what Paula said about it's really the developing world or under-resourced world that it continues to innovate. So for example, optic nerve diameter sheath, I think most of that actually came um, from a center in India where they don't have CAT scans everywhere. I know that um, I've heard vascular surgeons present from Columbia and other areas where they have a lot of penetrating trauma on using it instead of CAT scan where you can't get a CT angio everywhere. Um, And that might be my favorite thing about ultrasound. My two favorite things about ultrasound actually, one are that it it is cross subspecialties. So it matters to everybody and it's important to everybody. But my second favorite thing is that it's really being driven by under-resourced areas. And I think that's super cool. So that they're, they're really innovating because they don't have choices and we're learning from them, which I think is great. That's wonderful. I want to add something. So I don't know if you remember this, Sarah, but we were doing these echoes together. We were in the CTICU and you said to me something that it, beca- that it became relevant for the rest of my career. You said the numbers of the monitors kept getting bigger and bigger and the people keep walking farther and farther away from the patient. 
And there's something about touching a patient that gives you infinite information about what you want to get. Ultrasound allows you to touch a patient. Now, that just stuck with me for, because it is true, right? We have not to put like not to undermine telemedicine or anything else that you can do not from the bedside. But there's a difference when you are in front of a patient. That's why it's important that surgeons actually acquire this skill. Because there's a difference of calling the echocardiographers, maybe the fellow never attending to actually do an echocardiogram, than you doing it because you know the reason why you're doing it. You're touching the patient. You're there. You're involved with the medical care. Huge difference in the higher yield of information that you're going to obtain. Yeah, that's my third favorite thing, maybe my most favorite thing. You're right about ultrasound. It's the only new innovation I can think of that makes you in closer contact with the patient. Really, everything else is pushing the patient farther and farther away. And when you're doing that ultrasound, um, it, it's important to be aware of, of how warm the skin is, what's the capillary refill, is the heart rate monitor going off all the time, is the vent triggering, like just being in the room for 10 or 15 minutes independent of the ultrasound, I think really um, can make you a better doctor. So let's go back to basics a little bit. What are some of the top three studies that you think you do on the most frequent basis? I have a, a specific practice. So, so we do the focused rapid echocardiographic exam here as a consult service. So almost all of the imaging I do is cardiac. So I don't, I personally don't do a lot of fasts or even central lines at this point. Really, that's what I do. Um, and we keep kind of adding and playing to that exam. So that exam assesses ejection fraction, VTI, we get stroke volume, we calculate out the cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. We look at the right side, we calculate out a TAPSI. We've added um, hepatic portal and sometimes renal venous flows. Um, we look for B lines and we look for IJ change. My particular practice is almost all cardiac, but I, it's being used for all different things. I like optic nerve. I like, I, obviously, the FAST is a staple of trauma surgery. I think it has a variety of uses. Uh, Deb Stein once said, it's <laughs> uh, ultrasound is to critical care what, lap, what the laparoscope is to surgeons. It can be whatever you need it to be, which I thought is a good comparison. During the past 10 years, what we did is we created a curriculum to train nurse practitioners because we figured in the environment that I was, it could not depend on one person. If an echocardiogram or an ultrasound was dependent on Paula Ferrari, wasn't going to get done because you cannot be in a place 24-7. So we train everybody and anybody. We train the residents, we train the fellows, we train the nurse practitioners. I started training nurses. We did it for lines. We did it for pleura. We did fast in the emergency room. We pair with the, with the emergency, emergency medicine physicians and the, and the medical intensivists and created up like protocols for credentialing for everybody. So if you were a family doctor that wanted to get training ultrasound, you could take a course and prove that you were uh, good at it. And we saved our images for QI. And all of that could not be done with one, with one person or with one specialty. We all needed to be involved. The one thing I think that, um, that Dr. Murthy and I will probably debate <laughs> is that I think that the echocardiography, how she does it is amazing. It's great. It gives you a lot of information. In the experience that we had, we didn't have the equipment or um, I guess the training for everybody. So we transform it in something that is called transthoracic limited echocardiography or echocardiogram, which LTTE, which basically was 
looking for function, looking for fluid status and looking for effusion. So something like that it was binary. And we will look at the right side of the heart compared to the left. We diagnose a couple of pulmonary emboli. I think the moment that I know that we have won is when we have trained everybody and we have pushed, we like we were in M&M in a morning report and people will be like, oh, the patient was dry. Well, did you look at the IVC? Did you do the LTT? And I'm like, like those conversations in the trenches, I know it's not the holy grail. You have to have tons of information to make a decision. But it made me realize that we had gone somewhere with our training, our training program. The best of all is one day that I was on call and I thought a patient was having an MI and I called the cardiologist and he's like, well, you might want to, you might want to look at the IVC. And I'm like, you think? Do you think that maybe we need to? Then we started looking at the psoas muscles with uh, with some of the resins, making ultrasound available, like a tool that they could use for anything and everything. In that line of thinking, when we're trying to build programs and you're trying to work with your colleagues on, on gaining this new skill, what are some of the tips and tricks that you give for those when they're having a hard time adopting it, they have a hard time with different patients' body habits, and they're getting frustrated and don't want to embrace this as one of the tools in their toolbox. One of the papers I wrote was called Making the Financial Case for Surgical Critical Care Programs. Even here, we just, just like this week, have gotten the medical center itself to um, fund with 0.3 FTE, a system-wide or center-wide ultrasound POCUS, ultrasound program, and the EM guy is going to lead it. Shock Trauma, which has its own resources, has funded my program, and we were originally funded with a philanthropic grants, and we still are funded with philanthropic grants, and then with some DOD money. Um, so I, I think your first battle is, especially as you're graduating, like if you graduate and you're the person who's being hired to start an ultrasound program, I think fighting for resources and defining what you need is important. Or you have to be like Paula and never sleep um, and very driven. <laughs> um, but were you asking for like specific, were you asking how do you get a, a sort of a program started? Or were you asking if you're imaging an obese person, how, like what tricks do you need technically? Which, which way was that question going? I would love an answer to both. If you want to start with the second question first, more on some clinical technical um, tips. And then I would love to hear from both of you um, more about building a program, quality assurance, image storage, billing. It's got so many questions. I will take that question and just focus on echo for a second. So I think the first piece, and this is part of what Paula was saying about surgeons being the hardest to train. I think they're the hardest to train in some ways, and they're actually very easy to train in others. So one of the ways in which they're the hardest to train is they have no patience for a procedure that's outside of the operating room. So I think partially because of the fast, they don't consider an ultrasound to be a procedure. So they want it to be done and they don't have any patience for it. So I would say if you're doing an echo, just go in with you're going to be spending 10 or 15 minutes in that room, maybe 20 minutes, and that you set up to have somebody else watch the monitor. Your rest of your patients are covered. Like treat it like you're putting in a central line almost. Just dedicate yourself to that procedure at that time. The other thing I would say is you don't know how easy or hard an echo is going to be on somebody until you put the probe on the patient. Because sometimes the biggest, fattest people have the most beautiful images. And sometimes a little teeny, tiny, skinny person that you think you're going to see like glass, you can't see anything. So just just like try. <laughs> then you honestly, I know this sounds ridiculous, but look for something moving when you're looking for the heart. So the ventilator moves the heart down immediately. So, so you're going to be lower than you would be in somebody who's not intubated. So you sort of just slide along the sternum until you see something moving. And then you kind of work your angles. And then of course you adjust your depth. If you're doing cardiac imaging, I personally think you should really be in cardiac presets. I think it makes a big difference, um, which will help optimize some of the images. 
all of the systems I now have some sort of um, like eye scan. It's called on a Philips system. I'm not sure what's called on Sonosite, but it's like a button that you push that optimizes it. Those usually help. I don't think I disagree with Paul about different types of exam, like whether you do a quantitative one or whether you do a more limited one. But I think having a system where you always you always have the same pattern. So you go parasitic long, parasitic short, apical, subxiphoid, liver long, whatever you do, just to have a system that you always do it the same way and sort of stick to that system. So those would be my sort of technical points is have a system, be patient, play with your depth, use the presets on the machine. Oh, the other, I remember Paula, we were teaching a, a course somewhere and Paula said that that ultrasound looks like a broken TV till it clicks. Some of it is just about being being patient and, and trying until it clicks. Yeah, I completely agree. Everybody just sees an obese patient. They're like, oh, it's terrible. We cannot see. And I'm like, how do you know? Have you tried? Because some patients you cannot position, right? Because they're in log roll, because they have broken legs. If you think somebody's obese, has an open abdomen, you can't see. But don't discount yourself until you actually do it. Go with the proven play. And not only for the heart, that goes for everything, for far, for pleura, for whatever it is that you have that you want to find. Uh, the other one is do a ton. Like we all get better by doing more of it. This is key. People think that they're going to, that the longer and more um, intricate the course that you take, you're going to be better and better. And then you take a super amazing course and then you don't do any ultrasounds for five years. Then you're going to be terrible at it. Because what makes you better is that every day, you're, every day you're rounding, grab the ultrasound machine and go boom, boom, boom. And the more you, and you start finding things that you didn't know you were going to find. For everything, for the heart, for the pleura, for the for the lungs, for everything. Bringing everybody, I'm going to jump into bringing everybody together in, in terms of, in you know, shock trauma is a wonderful place and you have tons of resources, but not every place is like that. I personally had some uh, perceived competition because it was based on RVUs from, so first of all, nobody wanted to do it. The older people didn't want to do it. The younger people were super gung-ho about it, but the older people didn't. Then we figure out how to bill for it. And then because it's an RVU based and everybody wanted to do it. The other people, the radiologists, the cardiologists, other people were like concerned that, um, that we were going to call them more or call them less or be unsafe or maybe take a chunk of the RVUs. And then what you have to try to explain is there's a different indication, different patient population. You're not going to be repeating. You're not going to have an echo fellow. It's not going to be every half an hour repeating it to see if anything change. People don't get sick from eight to five. They get sick at any time during the day. And that helped. And I think that finding people that see the world like you and align with them. So we created a committee of an emergency room physician, a uh, cardiologist, which is was younger and kind of got the point, radiologist, ob That radiologist was actually, she was a surgeon before in India, so she understood it. And then um, um, pulmonologist. And we came together and we built something that we all agree on it. It wasn't easy because everybody has their own uh, ideas wrote it down and said, this is how the credentialing process should be. And then when when you work with people together, you're more powerful. Collaboration is a new competition. I don't think that you can do something alone, especially in the places where you are. I mean, you could try, but it's going to be exhausting. The system that we use for saving images is called QPath. It was developed by somebody that worked in Sonosite. He doesn't work there anymore. 
basically is uh, is web based and the way that it communicates with the with, so you place the medical record number and the information of the patient in the machine. I'm sorry, in an order, it goes to the web somewhere that was Cerner and and ends up in the machine, and then we saved it. And then it's not only saving it, then you have to now have people that are going to look at it and use it for teaching because you can be very certain about something that you're completely wrong off and for a long, long time if nobody points it out. And that also takes a little bit of humility, right? Some people really are afraid of learning because they're afraid of understanding that that they might be wrong. They might be they might be some things that they need to learn even though um even though age wise or or title wise they think that um they they are an expert. Paula made me think of something else. Back to the sort of you're 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 having trouble imaging a patient. Back to the thing she was saying. I think know who your local experts are. So it's there's something called peer-to-peer education, which you, if you're doing a surgical res, a surgical fellowship, a surgical critical care fellowship is probably going to be an emergency medicine resident. So the emergency medicine other fellows or the fellows trained in emergency medicine are going to be better at ultrasound than the surgeons trained in surgery. So if you're a new surgeon and you're trying to figure out how do I find lung sliding or where's the friggin' heart, find your EM colleague and he or she probably is going to know more and can teach you. And so that's another piece. And I agree with everything you said about starting a program. Um, it's complicated. You can call me or Paula. Like we're both pretty easy to find. It's going to be individual to whatever center you're at, honestly. Um, and nobody's senior partners are going to take it on. O- older folks don't like it. A lot of why we developed the why I developed the free the way I developed it is so we could talk about stroke volume, systemic vascular resistance, things that you know Dr. Scalia and and the sort of more senior partners uh, already accept. Um, but uh, you know, there's more young people coming in than there are older surgeons forming. So we'll win eventually. Can you talk a little bit more about how you incorporate training into either the fellowship program or the residency program, the trainees that you work with most often, um, just the logistics of how that works in your daily workflow? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you what we do at Trauma, which I know is specific here. I have a, a lab, a little lab. I have a sonographer. The exams are ordered. Fellows rotate with me. We are two to two weeks to month blocks, and we train surgery, intensive care, and neurocritical care fellows here. That's how we we do the echo training, which is, I know is unusual. Everything else we are um, kind of cowboy about. We just you learn the fast and you're in the true. We don't have a real structured training program, which is unfortunate. I haven't been as good as I should have been maybe at setting up programs for teaching here, but that's what we do. The way that I was in my previous program is that I um, exported the National Ultrasound um, Echocardiography and Plura course from the American College of Surgeons early on. I started training the, the chief residents, but then the chief residents were like, oh, this is awesome. We graduate and do breast, which is great. But then it was like, okay, all this effort. So I started training the PGY2s and then the fellows together. And then that's at the beginning of the year. And then everybody goes to town to do it. I modified kind of the same course for the nurse practitioners. So in the nurse practitioners, you don't have to do every year unless you have a high turnover. You do it like one year and then the next year not. And then the next year, yes. And then after you train a critical mass of people, your PGY2s now are threes and blah, blah, blah. Then it starts to become a peer pressure, positive peer pressure situation where um, everybody, you know, they surgeons are proud and a little competitive. So they don't want to be the person that don't know. So then, so then like it feeds onto, it's like a positive peer pressure uh, system that feeds into each other. Again, I emphasize when we go and teach these internationally that 
is super fun to have, but if you don't leave a local expert, it's going to die. This is not this is not a skill you, you acquire just by taking a course. It has to be a daily thing. And then it has to be somebody that is committed to review the images because I said before, you might think you're amazing and your images are the best and that you're doing it completely wrong until somebody is able to give you feedback so you can get better at it and you can get better at also what you find because the image might be great and you might be interpreted differently. Remember, when ultrasound is not, when you ultrasound is somebody, it's not only getting the image, but actually knowing what you're seeing. Yeah, that's a great point. Coming from emergency medicine residency, we we had faculty who would evaluate that and give us feedback, sometimes in real time and sometimes, you know, afterwards when they evaluate the images later. At your programs, who usually does that? Do you have a dedicated faculty member that reviews those images or is it, are you doing all of that or how does it work? Yeah, I can't stress enough how much I wish that surgery would learn from emergency medicine. So so Paula brought this up um, years ago, and, and periodically we sort of try to fight it, but it is a little bit of an uphill battle within surgery. So I, I think really the only way to fix this definitively would be for the RRC to make it a requirement, just like cases. A certain number have to be done, they have to be logged and checked, and, and programs have to do that. Like have, Programs have to move to meet RRC requirements. Without that sort of top-down um, order, like demands that it be changed, I think it's going to be haphazard. It's just going to keep being haphazard, and it's going to depend on individual attendings, caring and investing. So here I, I do all the echo, but we don't really review the fasts. There's, we don't have a system for reviewing the fasts, which is terrible. Um, we just have QPath coming online now after all of this time, the medical center has invested in QPath because the ED fought for it. And because the ED fought for it and shock trauma, we're, we're all friends. We get to jump on the ED's bandwagon because they've made this happen. But I think that various place to place, I do the echoes here. Um, and it's a it's a real problem in surgical residency programs and in critical care fellowships. I don't think internal medicine has answered this either, by the way. I think their fellows also um, don't know ultrasounds. So in, until we have some sort of requirements from the governing bodies of the training programs, it's going to be up to individual providers. The echo stuff is cool and fun. It's better than a PA catheter. Like it teaches you physiology. So it can become a selling point for you know, like a recruiting point. Um, and I think that um, most programs recognize they need it. And so they're, they really want to hire faculty, junior faculty, new faculty that knows it. So when you finish training, it can be part of why you're hired. Um, and if you're an existing program and you have this sort of shiny jewel, you can bring in new fellows and trainees with it. Um, but I really feel strongly, don't know how to exactly make happen, that the major bodies that govern training programs within surgery really should be demanding or requiring this. So I have great news because I am super lucky that I am the vice chair for education for the Surgical Critical Care Program Director Society. Jay Doucette and myself put up together a curriculum for echocardiography for critical care fellows um, a couple of years ago that got approved by everybody and then put in a website somewhere where nobody could find it. We're revising it and we have the support from the Acute Care Surgery Committee from WASD and the leadership from the for the American College of Surgeons of National Ultrasound Faculty. I still have yet to talk to East. But we're going to come up together with a very strong suggestion. We cannot mandate, and it definitely is not the RC. 
but a very strong suggestion of what are the basics that you should have when you're a critical care fellow. And that's going to be endorsed by the American College of Surgeons, the OAST and SCCPDS. I think that will be something that will help the fellows and definitely will help the programs. And being mindful that some people can like be amazing and, and learn how to calculate um, uh, left uh, ventricular outflow tract and dejection fraction, all that. And some people cannot be that amazing and they could just like do um, limited echocardiogram. It's going to be step one. These are the basics. Step two, this is what you can do. Step three, this is what you can do. It's certainly not a test or anything like that, but then you'll be able to, like the fellows that are graduating, will be able to have a curriculum and save the numbers. And maybe that can help you when you join another program as faculty with credentialing and with like the beginning of whatever. If, if you choose to do this for a large portion of your career, it will be helping doing that. I'm going to come back around. So if you if if you're a junior, like you've done a surgical critical care fellowship, you've taken on ultrasound, you love it. You're the go to person. You're the person who this practice has hired to start it. You're going to need some resources. And so I do think you have to fight for that. So you're you're no doubt your department is going to want to not pay you anything and not give you any protected time to do this. Um, And that is going to make it take years longer and make you much less likely to be successful. So just fight for what you need, which is a data storage system and some protected time. We do have lots of listeners that are at rural centers and maybe it's a nurse practitioner or emergency department physician or ICU doctor that wants to bring ultrasound to their program, but they don't have the collaboration that may be present in other academic centers. Is there any means for them to have someone that would be able to check on their imaging so they can go to the course and then bring it back to their program? Absolutely. So the National Ultrasound Faculty, I am happen to be the Vice Chair of Credentialing and Verification. You come, you take the course, and then you send us the images. We'll take a look. There's a group of people that do that. And I think because I think that one gap that we have is like surgeons need to help surgeons. And I think we have amazing societies that do great things all in silos. And so we don't know what the right hand and the left hand is doing. And this is part of the collaboration. We kind of need to help each other. So that's one way to do it. There's a team of people. There's like a group of people that are, that are doing it. Um, so that would be one resource. I don't know if Dr. Murphy has anything else. I think that there's cardiologists and radiologists in those programs that may be more willing to, to collaborate than you would think, um, especially if you sell it as this, we can do this at night and on the weekends and it will save less emergency intervention for you guys. Um, the cardiologists don't actually own the echo machines. The hospital does. The cardiologists don't actually own their PAC system, their data storage system. The hospital does. So it, it should be used by providers. There are ultrasound systems in any hospital that can be used for all these applications, even if they tend to live in the cardiology suite. Um, so, yeah, I love that Paul has done all this good work at a national level to really change change the landscape here in the U.S. That's fantastic. I want to emphasize what Dr. Murphy just said. Look, peer mentoring, right? Don't discount the resources that you have. Like sometimes just because we're embarrassed to ask for help, then you become isolated and again, working silos. Raise your hand, volunteer. The worst thing that can happen is to say no, big deal. You find somebody else that could say yes. Oh, I have another pearl too. So what you need to do is talk to the chief or whoever the sort of head of radiology or cardiology is, the physician, get them to say yes, and then don't talk to them anymore. Then you deal entirely with sonographers. Because sonographers, I think, come in one of two flavors. Some just want to do their jobs, 
and not teach and some love teaching. And there will be sonographers that are, and they're the ones who love teaching are usually the best sonographers within radiology or echocardiography. So I learned ultrasound from sonographers, not from cardiologists. And the directors will say yes, if you don't bother them. And then you can learn a lot from the sonographers that really know what they're doing and love teaching physicians and nurse practitioners. Totally agree with, with Paula also that we also teach our nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. When you're running a program, when you're doing clinical medicine, that, that core of people is almost, almost they're at least as important as residents and fellows in, in delivery of patient care because they're there all the time. Can you guys speak more about national certifications? And do you recommend that those that are interested in being the local expert go on to obtain any of these? Or do you, what do you see for the future of surgeon intensivists needing some sort of certification in critical care ultrasound? I'm going to give my perspective, and then Paula actually knows a lot more than I do about this. And again, my perspective has to do with ECHO specifically. I don't think it matters how you get the letters behind your name. It's, it's pretty hard to do through the Society of Echocardiography. Um, there's, there's a limited number of tracks for physicians. There's a new certification exam, but it doesn't have a path to boarding. I don't think it necessarily matters which of these things you do. I think it matters that you do something. That's the extent of what I have to say about that. I completely agree with Sarah. So there is that. You can take the test and show that you take the test. You can become National Ultrasound Faculty, and that's actually a title that you have, like part of the American College of Surgeons. You could take the SCCM course. I imagine that they also have some, a similar path. SCCM course is not surgery specific. It's a little bit longer, but again, it's not. It's like when people tell you, should I get an MPH or should I get um, a, a MDA? Well, like you can get whatever you want is what you do with that that matters, right? I think it adds to credibility, but I think also what makes you credible and what makes you um, an expert at something is more than the letters and more than the exams and more than, than all of that is what are you going to do every day and how are you going to create um, your sphere, sphere of influence, right? Let's say whatever. I'm going to be really good at this, number A, whatever we said that, that that is. Do it every day. Teach a bunch of people. Do grand rounds about it. Talk to the stakeholders that that need to uh, that I need to, and then just leave it, leave it, breathe it, eat it, walk it. Life will give you what you need. I this is like more philosophical for a discussion, but I think it is. Like if you actually do that, like the, this is your goal, whatever it is, ultrasound, blah blah blah, whatever it is, just th- have the will. Claire says, build it, and the money will come. Yeah, have the mental and emotional, more and more than emotional commitment to wake to wake up and want to do it every day. That is excellent advice for so many, so many different things. Thank you. Changing gears a little bit. You guys have mentioned that older people may not buy into using the ultrasound as much or not be as motivated to use it themselves. How have you been able to incorporate it into your normal endpoints of resuscitation or normal resuscitation parameters? And what do you do if the numbers don't seem to match up? I have one disclosure. Not all older people. My previous boss, Dr. Ravi Vachuri, who's like, I don't know how many years my senior. I believe he was 30 years out of training when uh, when I when I joined. He was the one who was like, hey, I want to learn it. 
show me how it is. So not all older people are built the same. The converse is true too. There's some young people who have no interest in it. Correct. I think every everybody and anybody can learn it. One trick in my perspective, there was another partner who I love and remain nameless that I don't work with that person anymore, also older, that did not want to know anything about it. It's like, I don't understand it. What? And then um, that person become became the Asian chair and he's like, hey, how do I buy an ultrasound machine? And I was like, yes, I won. I think, again, positive pre-pressure, positivity, when you want to bring people to your side, I think people come more to your side with your positive and, and uh, like positive pre-pressure. I, I don't know how to explain it that way. And then just repetition, like not don't be an act, but just natural repetition. Oh, this... M&M, what is the ultrasound show? This case, what did the ultrasound show? Oh, look at this wonderful Journal Club ultrasound article, right? Just like gentle repetition. And to answer your, your sort of specific question, Lauren, we measure the VTI, which gives you a measure of stroke volume, um, and then um, measure some measurements of volume responsiveness and incorporate it into the overall exam. So th- I think the, the most important piece is understanding where your patient is on their resuscitative path. So if they're acutely ill, about to go to the operating room, then you're going to tend towards fluid liberal. And then the moment you can dial back, you're going to tend towards more fluid conservative. So the first piece of echo is understanding where your patient is and whether more fluid conservative or fluid um, liberal makes sense. And then you do your ultrasound. You get a sense of what the ejection fraction is. You get a sense of what the RV function is. You get a sense of what the stroke volume and cardiac output are. If you know the stroke volume and cardiac output, you can calculate out the systemic vascular resistance to understand if they're vasodilated. Um, And recently, I've really been very interested in adding these measures of venous congestion or trying to understand when fluids are more likely to hurt the patient. So um, we also, I also look at B-lines and then these measurements of uh, right-sided venous pressure, so hepatic vein, portal vein, and renal vein. Um, and if I see any evidence of venous congestion, either left or right, I, I tend to either suggest dialing back or actually pulling fluid off. So what we've done here is have this kind of orderable exam that's more comprehensive, and then the providers are doing what they can do in between. But that idea of really thinking about the left side of the heart and the right side of the heart differently understanding what you think the cardiac output is, and then looking to see if you think there's harm in fluid, if there's evidence of venous congestion. Yeah, I love that we've kind of covered the entire gamut from basic to advanced, everything from, you know, looking at just the heart, the IVC, and then moving on to the lungs, and then finally the VEXA scan with the venous congestion. It's more of an advanced study, in in my personal opinion. I know I'm obviously new to it, but uh, hopefully that certainly becomes more mainstream. Yeah, I think VEXIS in particular, since you brought it up, like VEXIS in particular, I understand what they're doing. Everybody likes to score. Um, But I I think it's making it much more complicated than it has to be. Um, And I think people are losing track of what they actually studied. So what they actually did was they, they looked at these three measures of venous congestion plus IVC in post cardiac surgical patients immediately post-op, and the incidence of renal dysfunction, so something called the MAKE-30. Um, and, and then they developed a score to predict this MAKE-30, which involves doing all of the metrics. Um, and so we repeated that study in, in a general MICU, pop, like a general MICU surgical care population. Um, and, I, and I think it may not translate outside of the CSICU, that particular score, um, but I also think it's hard to get all those metrics. You can't always get the renal, um, especially once somebody has developed renal, renal uh, dysfunction. Um, so I, I don't do the score. I just look for congestion. And if I see right-sided congestion, especially in a patient who's had abdominal surgery, has the fresh anastomosis, is a head trauma, 
if I see signs of venous congestion, I think you're really starting to see evidence fluid is more likely to be harmful. Um, I don't do the score. I think the score is complicated um, and, and not what you need to do. I, I really love those right-sided venous pressure measurements, and I hope they don't kind of be perceived as too complicated because they're not, they're really not that much harder to get. The problem is that you, you probably do need your ECG lead hooked up to do hepatic, and that's problematic everywhere. But I just really love those measurements, so I don't want them to die. <laughs> Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you, when your team's consulted, you come and do the ultrasound. Are you following these patients or repeating ultrasounds if needed? And then, uh, Paula, if you could mention how you kind of incorporate it into your ICU rounds in general and so that we can continue to use these really as a point of care and um, repetitive studies. Yeah, so um, this this month, actually, my sonographer is away. So I've been doing all the ultrasounding, which has been really great for me. Um, and so we we basically only repeat it if the team reorders it or if there's something in particular we want to follow. So I love the idea of trending it. I think it's fantastic. I haven't really operationalized that yet. Um, but yes, it's an orderable exam. We do it. And we do it during rounding because it's, it's pretty hard to take 10 or 15 minutes out during rounds to like to do this sort of more comprehensive exam. But that's what we do. How about you, Paula? So the way that we did it is that when I was in the ICU, I would walk around with it with the ultrasound machine. If you have the ultrasound there with you, you'll find that you have more people that need questions, answers. Like, should we start CVH? Should we use diuresis today? Should we do, how is it that we can uh, optimize the patient? Now, the people that are in, like in rocket fuel, three pressers, obviously you're going to be using that a lot. The morning ultrasound, if we're rounding, usually was done by, by one of the fellows with my supervision. The follow-up ultrasound, probably me, if I'm, if I'm there available. If not, it will be one of the fellows. Nurse practitioners will do it as well, but they will show me images in real time. Like, we will like present the patient, talk about it. Somebody goes to the ultrasound, comes back with the met, with the images. It's, it was um it was a sonocyte with the what of the expert there with the big screen. We saw it. We say okay, go ahead and diuresis. People that are sick change minute to minute or hour to hour, right? So you need to be there available in doing it. So that's how we used to do it and and um day by day basis. We had a note in uh, Cerner that we were using at the time to basically document what we saw. And the image was was uh, saved. Um, and same with Plera, same with um, with Central Lines. Yeah, on the on the note issue, this is something again where the ED is ahead of all of us. So the the clinical note and the billable note are not identical, but they're not that different. So you just have to make sure your clinical note is also a billable note, and then you can get revenue. But building in revenue. Um, is important in keeping your program alive because it will make your director more likely to give you a little bit of money to sustain you. So, so the point of revenue is not just revenue production. It is to sustain the resources you need to effectively run an ultrasound program. You'll never make what a surgeon will make doing ultrasound. It's just not that billable, but you can make enough to pay for some resources. Um, and, if, and if you don't add in the billable component, you're ne- it's going to be much harder for you to get support that will make your program more viable. Yeah, I agree. So we had a note in Cerner that was basically explaining what we found, but there's also some things that in QPath, after you've done the test, we'll ask you questions and that e- that's easy. You can you can use QPath for billing. We created, after the credentialing pro- uh, process, we went over and saw how many um, uh, limited echocardiograms we have done, and we got over 4,000, counting all the units in the emergency room. When we started looking about how get how the exams got paid 
for some reason in the emergency room they were paid almost nothing in the ICU they were paid a little bit more I don't I I honestly do not understand what makes it better but I completely agree with Sarah that um, if you make these a uh, billable it will be you have more chances in in this to be sustainable and you had to have your images linked to your note or to the patient in some way right yeah all of that's online in various places and I and yeah you have to have in order you have to have a referring physician who is not the person performing the exam you have to have the images saved you have to have the images linked to the report and all that linked to the chart Every hospital in the United States has all that infrastructure already. It's just a question of you learning, like in your particular hospital, how, how to make all that happen, um, which will require some time. But once you figure that out, um, it will work for whatever ultrasound exam you're doing, whether it's echo or point of care. And there's definitely somebody in the emergency department um, who knows what the different requirements are for the different types of ultrasound exams. Awesome. So where do you guys see ultrasound going from here? What are the next steps for ultrasound in critical care? That's an excellent question. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. And I think that the future depends on what you do today. So I think we, uh, including and unlimited to the people that are here, are the owners of how that future is going to look. So are we going to let it go? And are we going to let only um, emergency medicine physicians do it? Or are we going to own it and train our people and and, uh, hold each other responsible? For what the for what the patient needs, because ultimately this is a great skill, but doesn't belong to us; it belongs to the patient. It can be many things. So I think it could tell you a lot about cerebral perfusion. You can do TCDs with it. I like optic nerve. Like I really hope it gets like what we've done for the free. I hope we can do for the brain. Like I would love for that to happen. Um, and I would really like for us all to also push industry so that everything about the ultrasound machines, from the software to makeup to hard it is to hook up ECG leads. It's all designed for cardiology and radiology, which has a whole different workflow than point of care ultrasound. So I would love, I Sonosite has tried, but it's it's still, the whole system is not set up really for point of care applications. So I hope the technology, that the, the, the companies invest in more software, which they're starting to do, more better point of care ultrasound software. If there was one thing that you wish all surgeons knew about the ultrasound, what would that be? I have two answers to that. One is I really, I really wish that every surgeon would take a long, hard look at an apical four chamber and spend like 10 or 15 minutes just thinking about systole, diastole, right side, left side, blood flowing from the IVC and the SVC into the right atrium, through the right ventricle, out to the pulmonary artery and veins, coming back into the left atrium, left ventricle. Think about the fact that the left side is a pump and the right side is more of a flow generator. Just sort of imagine it failing at each piece. So if you don't have enough output, what happens to perfusion? If you have venous congestion, what happens? Like just that physiologic, like, you know, really thinking for a minute about capillary beds, systole, diastole, right and left side of the heart. Um, and the one measurement I think I really wish everybody would really learn how to do is the VTI. Because I think the VTI gives you assessment of volume. I think it gives you an assessment of cardiac output. I think there's some ways around measuring the output track diameter so you can get stroke volume. Um, but those would be my the sort of basic, really basic, fun, meaty physiology of, of echo, straight up normal echo. And then measuring a VTI would be the one measurement I would choose. Although I really like TAPSI and I like these venous congestion measurements also. I wish that the surgeons in general, no, I mean, I think that would be wonderful if everybody will learn um, to what Dr. Murthy said. But 
I think that if every surgeon in general, including in unlimited to echocardiography, but pleura and lines and looking at fascial dehiscence and whatever, will understand that the only limitation that there is between not knowing how to do it and becoming an expert is yourself. And the only limitation is staring at the mirror. So um, basically it's understanding, as I said before, the personal responsibility of this is a skill and um, the you decide how good or how not good you're going to be at it. I think too, it's a transfer. Like, so if you learn echo, you can learn fascial dehiscence. Like echo is, is the hardest. And if you learn echo, then you'll get pleura. Like it, it totally transfers and it will click at some point and then you'll be able to do whatever kind of ultrasound you want, whether it's to look for an abscess or, um, yeah, I, I think that it, you can, you can do it. <laughs> like you just have to wait for it to click. Um, but it's, it's not harder than a whipple or even a hernia repair. Well, I thank you guys so much for joining us today. I am personally inspired to improve my ultrasound skills. So it doesn't all just look like a static ETV screen. Um, (laughs) And um, look to our show notes for some more information about where to get started if you're interested in starting a program. And as always, I encourage everyone to check out the other opportunities on the EAST website for education, including the Career Cast and EAST Minutes. Thank you again. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the EAST Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.